Just before midnight on the evening of December 6, 1991, a reporter and photographer from a local CBS affiliate were on a ride-along with Austin Police Department Sergeant John Jones. They were initially following up on a call from earlier that night when a new call came over the radio for a report of two fatalities. It said, quote, suspected arson, suspected homicide, looks like gunshot wounds, end quote. Jones quickly flipped his lights on and headed to the scene of the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop, which was located in a strip mall off of West Anderson Lane. The call was quickly updated by a cop who was at the scene. He said, quote, John, Jonesy, make that four, end quote. What Sergeant Jones would find when he arrived at the scene would continue to haunt him for decades to come. The bodies of four young girls bound, shot, and burned inside the yogurt shop. It's been 31 years since this horrendous crime and the suspect or suspects are still out there. This is the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. I'm Ashton and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. Thanks for tuning in today. The true crime case that we're covering today is the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop murders. The victims were four teenage girls, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison and her 15-year-old sister, Sarah, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, who worked at the yogurt shop with Jennifer, and their friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayers. The case truly rocked the town of Austin at the time, and it's left a lasting impact on the community, as well as the girls' family members and loved ones. There's a lot of information in the case. I got some of my information from Beverly Lowry's book called Who Killed These Girls? It covers the case in depth. Um, I want to give a trigger warning, though, because this one is rough. There's, there's a, lot, a lot to get to. Um, let's get into it. Jennifer and Sarah Harbison were living in Austin in 1991 with her mother, Barbara Sirachi, and her husband, Frank. Jennifer was a 17-year-old high school senior. She and her boyfriend, Sonny Buchanan, were enjoying typical teenager activities, and they had plans for their future together. They were looking forward to their upcoming graduation, and they had even already began wearing their 1992 graduation rings. They attended Lanier High School, where Jennifer was a relay runner. She drove a 1991 dark blue Chevy S10 pickup truck, which her father Mike had purchased brand new. She had previously worked at Albertsons and then began working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop to help her dad with the truck payments. Her friend Eliza influenced her to apply for the job after telling her what a great place it was to work. Initially, her mom, Barbara, didn't want her to take the job. She instead wanted her to enjoy her senior year and have fun. But Jennifer's hardworking personality just wouldn't allow for that, and her mother wasn't surprised when she did end up taking the job. Sarah Harbison was the 15-year-old sister of Jennifer. She was said to have been in a great mood around the time of her death because just a few weeks prior, she had started dating a new boy 
named Mike McCathern, and he had recently given her his senior ring. She was a sophomore at the time of her death, and she was really active like her sister. She played basketball, volleyball, and was a member of the student council and FFA. Eliza Thomas was 17 years old at the time of the murders. She attended Lanier High School with Sarah and Jennifer. According to her family, she was friendly and popular. She loved animals, and her mother said that she thinks she would have gone on to become a writer. But her father believed she would have gone on to become a veterinarian because of her love of animals. Eliza was also a member of the FFA, and she worked two jobs. One was escorting a nine-year-old boy to gym lessons twice a week, and the other was working at the yogurt shop for $4.35 an hour, which she had begun in January of that year. Eliza was really close with her family, especially her sister, Sonora. She was also said to have been pretty mechanically inclined. She enjoyed working on her 1971 car, and she had even asked for car parts for Christmas the year prior. Amy Ayers was the youngest victim. She was the 13-year-old best friend of Sarah Harbison, and she attended Burnett Middle School. Amy liked to needlepoint and, like the others, loved animals. She especially loved horses, and it's said that she began riding horses at three years old. She would wear a cowboy hat to school, and she was just all cowgirl, according to her father. Friday, December 6th, 1991, was similar to any other Friday for the girls. Sarah came up with the idea to go to the North Cross Mall, as any teen would do on a Friday night. This was something I did all the time. We loved to go to the mall when we were teenagers and just w walk around, pretend to buy things with the money that we did not have, <laughs> that kind of thing. But Sarah didn't want to go alone to the mall, so she asked her mom if she could invite her best friend, Amy Ayers. The two didn't get to see each other very often, so this would give them a chance to reconnect, and they were planning on having a sleepover after. Sarah called to invite Amy, and her parents agreed. They had plans to go Christmas shopping that evening and trusted that Amy would be safe that night. This would be Sarah and Amy's first time going to the mall by themselves, so it was a big deal for them. Jennifer and Sarah's mother, Barbara, suggested that the girls ride with Jennifer to work, and on the way, she could drop them off at the mall and then pick them up when they, whenever they were finished. Then the younger girls could help Eliza and Jennifer close the yogurt shop at 11 p.m. before heading home. The idea was that with all three of them helping out, they would be able to finish the closing duties quickly, and so that was the plan. Eliza worked an earlier shift than Jennifer did that night, and after a quick phone call with her mom, she got ready for her shift, pulled her hair up into a scrunchie, and put on her ICBY work outfit and headed out the door. She arrived at the yogurt shop for her 7 o'clock shift, and it's possible that she was thinking about her shift from the night before. She received a prank call while she was working that was orchestrated by her ex-boyfriend, Roger Duca, and they were laughing at her on the phone and just being annoying, and it, it kind of upset her. So when she got to the yogurt shop, the girl who worked before her was finishing up her shift. Eliza grabbed the office keys off the cash register, which is where they are required to be according to the company's policies. 
She went to the office and unlocked the door. She set down her stuff, including her backpack, purse, car keys, and coat before locking the door and returning the keys to the cash register. And that's where the keys would be found after the murders. Eliza would work in the shop alone until Jennifer's shift began at 8 o'clock p.m. Around 7.30 p.m., Jennifer and Sarah headed out the door. Their mom watched as they left the house and Jennifer's truck, and they headed towards Amy's house to pick her up. Amy kissed her parents goodbye before they left to go shopping, and she bounded out of the house when Jennifer and Sarah arrived to pick her up. A few minutes later, Jennifer dropped Amy and Sarah off at the mall, which was just a short distance away from the yogurt shop. Amy was wearing her brother's black bomber jacket, jeans, black lace-up boots, and a belt with a big heart-shaped buckle, which was her mother's. Sarah was wearing a black denim jacket with a lightning bolt across the front. The girls agreed on a time for them to be picked up, and Jennifer headed to work. Eventually, it would be said that Jennifer went back to pick up Sarah and Amy around 9 o'clock p.m. Eliza's mom, Maria, would make a quick stop at the yogurt shop around 9.30 to visit with her daughter, and James Thomas stopped by after that with his wife. Amy and Sarah returned to the shop around that time after picking up takeout pizza at Mr. Gaddy's, which is said to have closed at 10 o'clock p.m. At 10.42, Eliza would ring up the last real sale of the night. This was the order of a couple named Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan, who had been to see a movie that night, and were stopping by for dessert. They claimed that there were only two men in the shop when they arrived. They were wearing hooded jackets and sitting in the last booth on the left, closest to the cash register. According to Margaret, it didn't appear that they were eating anything. They finished their yogurt and left, noting the time was 10.47 p.m. According to Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry, the indoor layout of the yogurt shop is described as having dark red floors with wood paneling on the walls. On one side of the shop, there were three booths which had green vinyl. There were five booths along the other wall on the other side of the shop. Each of the booths had a chair at the end of the table. There was a serving counter that extended a good portion of the shop and included the cash register. There was another counter with the yogurt machines and a freezer that had all of the prepackaged pies, cakes, etc. Near the end of the serving counter was a door that led into the back room, which is where the storage room, office, and bathrooms were located. There's layouts and photos of the yogurt shop, on, and I'll include those on the blog for you to check out as well. Bryce Foods owned the yogurt shop, which was founded in 1977 by a brother and sister duo from Dallas. Their names were Bill and Julie Bryce, and they used their tuition money from Southern Methodist University as collateral for a loan to buy and revamp two existing yogurt shops. They launched their brand, and it was a success for the most part. ICBY was a local hotspot. Families loved to go there for a quick after-dinner treat. Young couples would end their first dates there and even the governor was said to stop by. Rice Foods had a lot of rules for their employees to keep the shop running smoothly. They also had a very specific closing schedule. The yogurt shop closed at 10, 11 o'clock p.m., and this is what the closing routine entailed. At 10.50 p.m., 10 minutes before closing time, employees were required to turn the open sign to closed lock the front door from the inside, and leave the key in the lock, which, you know, 
is common to prevent further customers from entering the shop right before closing time. The employees were then said to deposit the night's earnings in a safe in the office before following the Bryce Foods closing shift cleaning schedule, which included cleaning the machines and tables, stacking chairs on tables when they were done, and refilling napkin dispensers at each table. The employees would then take the key and lock the door from the outside before putting the key in an envelope and sliding it under the door for the manager to get the next day. All of the employees at this ICBY location were around the same age, 17 years old, so it was common for two young girls to be closing this shop alone every night. Every transaction was recorded on the cash register. On this night, since she came in earlier, Eliza worked the cash register while Jennifer took customer orders. At 11.03 p.m., a no-sale was recorded, which was 13 minutes after the front door was locked. Because of how specific their cleanup schedule was, the manager was able to tell investigators exactly how far the girls got into their cleaning routine before being interrupted. Jennifer had locked the front door where the key remained, she had wiped off all the tables except for one, and she had pulled a step stool close to the yogurt dispenser so that she could drain and clean them. Eliza was cleaning the counter with a rag when something happened. She left the rag on the serving counter, and that's where it remained. One booth near the cash register remained uncleaned without the chairs stacked on top or the napkin dispenser refilled. The speculation around what happened at 11.03 p.m. continues to this day. Around 11.45 p.m., a rookie for the Austin Police Department named Troy Gay was on DWI patrol when he noticed smoke rising in the distance and headed towards it. He pulled into the alley behind the building and saw flames shooting out two steel doors. He saw a man waving him towards the building. This man was Jorge Barney. He owned the store next door to the yogurt shop called The Party House and was the first to smell the smoke that night. By the time Officer Gay pulled around the front of the building, smoke was pouring out of the roofs of adjacent businesses and he had to call it into dispatch. The first call came in at around 11.48 p.m. Officer Gay initially gave the wrong address because he was unfamiliar with the area but that was quickly corrected by another officer. Fire crews and emergency medical service ambulances arrived. They initially thought this would be a typical accident fire. You know, it's really common for people in restaurants to leave a burner on or something happened with a fryer or a grill. But this was a frozen yogurt shop. This wasn't a fast food joint with grills or anything like that. Fire crews, including two firefighters named Renee Hector Garza and David DeVoe, tried opening the front door, but they were unable to. The key remained in the lock where it was put in the front door when the front door was locked at 10.50 p.m. Garza then used a crowbar to open the door. They entered the building on their hands and knees to avoid the smoke. They made it to the back room where they were able to stand up. They found the fire and began to attack it, with the hottest flames being noted as coming from halfway up the south wall of the storage room. When the fire was knocked down, they were able to assess the situation a little bit better. 
Garza looked around before feeling his crew member grab his shoulder and kind of shake him before asking, quote, is that a foot, end quote, while pointing his flashlight at the floor. They immediately knew what they had found, and they quickly located a second body, and then another body before calling it in. The initial call then had to be updated to report that another body had been found. Four young girls, who would later be identified as Jennifer, Sarah, Eliza, and Amy. Melvin Stahl, an arson investigator for the Austin Fire Department, would conclude that the fire at the yogurt shop had been started somewhere high along the south wall of the storage area and then had spread up the wall across the ceiling and down the opposite wall at approximately 11.42 p.m. The bodies of Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah were found on the floor of the storage area covered with rubble from the fire. Eliza's body was lying on top of Sarah's body, and Jennifer's body was lying beside them. The evidence suggests that the three bodies had been stacked and that Jennifer's body had moved during the fire. All three bodies were badly burned. Sarah Harberson was found nude, gagged, and her hands were found bound behind her back with a pair of peonies. Her body was severely charred, and she was shot through the back of her head with a 22 caliber gun. Jennifer was found with her hands behind her back, but they weren't bound at the time her body was found. She had also been shot in the back of her head with a 22 caliber gun. Eliza was found also nude and gagged. Her hands were bound behind her back with a brassiere. She had also been shot in the back of her head with a 22 caliber gun. Amy Ayer's body was found on the floor of the preparation area, a little bit away from the other girls. She had a ligature around her neck, and it was determined at autopsy that she had been strangled, but that was not what killed her. She was nude, and her body was not as significantly burned as the others. The drawer for the cash register was found near her body, with coins scattered around and it would later be said that there was $540 missing from the cash drawer. Amy had two gunshot wounds, one to the top left side of her head and the other behind her left ear. The first was caused by a 22 caliber bullet but did not penetrate the skull. The medical examiner testified that this shot was not fatal. The second fatal gunshot wound was caused by a 380 caliber bullet that passed through her brain and exited through her right cheek. She also had bruises on her lower lip as well as under her chin. There was evidence that she had been raped. Her cause of death was listed as, quote, a result of gunshot wounds of the head and asphyxia due to ligature strangulation, end quote. Fingerprints were taken and her nails were clipped at the time of autopsy in order to hopefully gather evidence of the attacker or attackers. The time of death could not be determined during the autopsy. Four 22 caliber bullets were recovered from the bodies during the autopsies. Due to the condition of the bullets, it was not possible to determine if all four had been fired from the same weapon. A 380 caliber bullet and a 380 caliber shell casing were recovered from the scene of the murders, but the murder weapons were never found. Because of the condition of the crime scene, the fire, the water from the fire hoses, it created a very difficult environment for investigators to gather evidence in. 
When John Jones arrived at the scene and took it all in, he knew immediately that he was going to need outside assistance with the case. So he called in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the FBI, and the Texas Department of Public Safety to help. The investigation was brutal. The family were notified about four hours after the murder. And I just can't imagine receiving that news. It's just horrifying. The medical examiner arrived at the scene and a decision was made to process the bodies at the scene. The positions of the bodies were noted and it was also discovered that the back door was unlocked and propped open. Things were not as preserved as maybe they should have been. Of course, it's really hard with the condition of the crime scene, but there were things that were not well documented or investigated. There were even some items from the crime scene that were lost, including some of the melted shelves from the storage room, a ladder, a mop, and a mop bucket, all of which were moved to the alley and eventually disappeared. The bodies were accompanied by detectives during autopsy. The autopsies were performed by Dr. Tommy Brown from the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office. The bodies weren't swabbed for evidence of any accelerant, though, which I thought was kind of strange. Reports of suspicious people and vehicles in the area that night spread. People were calling in tips left and right. There was a report from a couple who say they saw a suspicious van in the area, and this was corroborated by another man who claimed the van was white. A woman claimed that on the night of the murder, she saw several strange people outside of the shop between 6 and 8 p.m. Strange-looking people, I should say, which is like, who's strange-looking, honestly? Another woman described an encounter with a man in the shop one afternoon that left her shaken. She said that just four days before the murder, she noticed the man in the shop. He wasn't in line to order. He was standing near the freezer, but wasn't looking inside it like he was trying to pick a pie or a cake or something like that. According to the witness, he was staring at the back of the shop and the back door. She said that he seemed skittish and eventually ordered, but it still, it still was strange enough to have her mark it in her head as something that was weird. A customer noticed around 10.30 that there was a man sitting in an older white vehicle outside of the shop that night, and when she returned, he was gone. A woman walking past the strip mall between 11.05 and 11.10 noticed that the yogurt shop lights were still on, which she thought was unusual. Several months later, the former manager of the yogurt shop, Reese Price, would describe how she and Jennifer had received harassing phone calls at home and at work in the months prior to the murder. She also said that someone had broken into her apartment and hadn't taken anything, but they had arranged her underwear in a pile on her bed with a kitchen knife on top. There was also, apparently, a crawl space above the ceiling that connected the shops to each other in the strip mall. Reese said that she and the other girls would hear noises up there, and one time they found that a ceiling tile had been moved in the men's restroom, and there was a shoe print on the toilet seat. The other shops in the strip mall closed before the yogurt shop, leaving the parking lot pretty empty in the later evening. On the night of December 6th, a local regular to the shop 
named Lucella Jones arrived at the shop to pick up her treat, a treat for her husband, who had just had dental surgery and could only eat soft food. As she arrived around 8.15 to 8.30, she noticed that there were only two other vehicles in the parking lot, which would later be identified as Jennifer and Eliza's cars. As Lucella entered the yogurt shop, she was surprised to see that there were only two customers in the shop at the time. What appeared to be two teenagers at the table closest to the door. They were leaning in, talking, and focusing on a bag in front of them. Something about them made her really uncomfortable. She would testify later that the boys appeared to be between 14 and 17 years old, hippie-looking, and possibly Hispanic. One of the boys reached into the bag, and she claims that she could hear something clinging around inside, and she thought that it could possibly be coins or keys or maybe marbles, but she couldn't say. She couldn't really identify why they made her uncomfortable, but it was enough for her to make a note of that in her mind. Between 9.30 and 10 o'clock that night, it's said that a man named Daryl Croft entered the shop to pick up dessert for himself and his two female companions who had just eaten dinner together that night. Croft was a security guard and always supervised his surroundings. He paid attention to the people around him, so when he entered the yogurt shop that he frequented and noticed a fidgety young man in a green military-style jacket, his senses were heightened, and he claims like he, that he felt like something was off immediately. The young man asked Croft about his car and if he was a police officer or security. He told him he owned a security company. And he then noticed the young man was indecisive and wasn't making a yogurt selection when he was asked. Instead, he asked for a Sprite. They only had 7-Up, which he accepted before asking to use the bathroom, to which Eliza told him he could. When Croft realized where the young man went, he was immediately uncomfortable. And he tried stalling to see if the guy would come back because he had gone through the door to the back of the yogurt shop. So he was waiting for him to see if he would come back, but his yogurt was ready, and he left the shop. The next day, though, when he read about the murders, he went straight to the police to tell them what he saw, and he filled out an incident report. He eventually went under hypnosis to try to gather more specific details from his memory of the night, but nothing came of it. Eliza's parents, who were both there around that time, did not remember seeing a man in a green jacket, at least at that time. Eventually, Maria, would, Maria, who was Eliza's mother, would go on to claim that she did remember seeing a young man in a green jacket at the shop that night. Her father did remember seeing two girls sitting at a table eating pizza, but he didn't know Amy or Sarah, so he didn't realize that that was who it was at the time. The investigators had an uphill battle ahead. They looked at and interviewed many people. They had over 300 suspects within a short amount of time. There were over 50 false confessions in the case, and six of them were written confessions. Early on, Sergeant John Jones created a list of 13 pieces of evidence to be held back from public notice. That included how and where the fire started, the key that was in the front door, 
how much money had been taken, how the girls' bodies were arranged, what was used to bind the girls, that the office was not entered, that the office key was still under the cash register, the caliber of the weapons, that two pairs of the victim's underpants were missing, that Amy's leather bomber jacket was missing, and that she had a bruise under her chin from some kind of blow, that Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with, and finally, that Amy was shot with two different caliber guns. This list would eventually have to be altered several times, but it was hoped that this information would lead to the suspect or suspects who committed the murder. Jones issued a press conference confirming that four girls had been found in an area near the back door of the yogurt shop. The CEO of Bryce Foods announced that they were offering a $25,000 reward for evidence leading to a conviction in the case. Billboards were set up showing the girls' pictures and details of the reward being offered. Word had spread and the community was on high alert. One of the first persons of interest in the case was a teenager named Maurice Pierce. He was arrested eight days after the murder, carrying a 22 caliber gun at the mall. It's said that another boy noticed him walking around the mall with one of his friends named Boris Wellborn, and he had seen the gun and reported it to a security officer named Malcolm Wilson, who then took possession of the gun and escorted the boys to the security office. Maurice was charged with unlawful possession of a firearm, and they were transferred to a juvenile facility. Maurice was interviewed, and it was during that interview that he implicated three other men in the murders of the girls at the yogurt shop. He implicated Forrest Welburn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen. Pierce would go on to sign a statement saying that it was likely Forrest who used the twenty-two caliber gun to kill the girls in the yogurt shop. He was eventually wired up and sent to speak with Forrest Wellborn to hopefully get some information. And when he did go to speak with him, it was clear that Forrest didn't have any information to give him. Pierce tried to get Forrest to provide some kind of confession by mentioning how the night of the murder, he wanted to use a gun that he, and that he had killed the girls. And Forrest responded back saying he was joking and he had never killed anybody. And that made Pierce really frustrated. And it was pretty evident that he didn't know anything about what, what Pierce was saying. Forrest Wellborn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen were all interviewed, but there was nothing to connect them to the crime. So they kept looking for suspects. There was a group of individuals who were apparently into the, quote, paranormal, end quote. And I have in my notes here, uh uh-oh, satanic panic. (laughs) And the rumor was that they were beginning to talk about the murders. There was a woman in this group who kept coming up in police tips. So they eventually conducted a raid on her house looking for evidence. And it ended up being proven that the items that were found in her house were stage props and rat bones. Like she just collected weird stuff. And they weren't actually satanic ritual items. They couldn't find anything to connect her or this group of people to the crime. So they were ruled out as suspects. 
According to a witness in an eventual sketch, there was a man who was seen sitting in a car outside of the yogurt shop that night. Apparently, the sketch was linked to a man who was arrested in connection with a kidnapping and assault case, as well as an, as an accomplice that he had. The two were arrested in Mexico, and John Jones's team went to interview them. They ultimately confessed to the murders to Mexican authorities and were going to be tried in Mexico. The confessions included details that didn't match the case, though, including the caliber of the gun that they claimed that they used. It's believed that these confessions were coerced by Mexican authorities, and it was another dead end for John Jones and his team. John Jones was eventually moved off the case in order to get a fresh set of eyes on it. The case went cold for a few years until one of the detectives was looking into prior evidence and suspects, and they noticed a few things about Maurice Pierce's prior claims. In October of 1997, Paul Johnson, the newest homicide detective on the case, set up an interview with Maurice Pierce to get a better idea of what had happened that night. The story that he had told several years earlier had changed. He said, quote, I know I made a statement when I was arrested that said that Forrest told me other details about the murders. I don't remember any of that now. I know I was very nervous and I was trying to say things to help me get out of my police interview and they were twisting my story up, end quote. Paul Johnson then went on to interview Forrest Wellborn, who didn't remember very much of the night. He didn't even have the date right, but acknowledged that he was probably at the mall that night because he was there often with Maurice. He denied any involvement in the murders and he passed a polygraph test which, are, you know, aren't always reliable, but that's a story for another day. Johnson also called to speak with Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, but they didn't have any new information for him. In early 1998, he would call the men again, and later that year, Johnson sent Pierce's 22 caliber gun to ballistics for testing. And this is where it was again confirmed that the weapon did not match the weapon that was used in the murders. Paul Johnson was laser-focused, though, and with the permission of the chief, he created a new task force to pursue leads in the case. He put together an entire 205-slide, four-hour PowerPoint presentation that was aptly named, quote, the investigative plan to pursue Maurice Pierce, end quote. Really, like, that's not really burying the lead there, Paul. But he presented this PowerPoint at the task force's first informal meeting on August 6, 1999. They had their man. They believed that Maurice Pierce was the mastermind and the ringleader, and they weren't going to back down. They brought the four men who were initially interviewed and released eight years earlier back in for more questioning. And this time, the questioning was pretty aggressive. Michael Scott now 25, was interviewed on September 9, 1999. Apparently, this time around, he had more information than he did eight years prior, which is interesting. The story was changing as he was telling it. They broke him down during the interrogation after maintaining that he had a poor memory, but he wasn't there. 
they got him to confess that he was there that night and but he didn't give correct, correct details and the detectives would correct him and tell him quote i'm not going to give you the right answer end quote they also said quote we've talked to everybody maurice robert forrest and we know what happened we know more than you think we do michael end quote of course this is a normal tactic it's not unusual for investigators to use these kind of good cop, bad cop kind of things to get the information that they want. We've seen this kind of thing before. And unfortunately, we've seen it in cases where maybe the tactics have been used to influence confessions that possibly aren't true. So the detectives had their chairs pushed really close to him and they were in his face you know, going back and forth with the good cop, bad cop thing until he eventually told a story. He said, quote, I think I've dug myself a hole and I don't know how to get out, end quote. He told the detectives that they were hanging out at the North Cross Mall that night and Maurice came up with an idea to get some money. He said that it was his, it was Maurice's idea to rob the ice cream shop, the yogurt shop, and Maurice entered the shop and placed an order. Robert and Michael enter shortly after and ask to use the bathroom, which we remember is located in the back of the shop. So according to Michael, they propped the back door open at that time. After the store closes, Robert and Maurice enter the, through the open back door with guns. They planned on robbing the yogurt shop and Robert told the girls to remove their clothes, clothing and then Michael tied them up and gagged them. Maurice demanded money from the girls and then shot two of the girls. Robert hit one of the girls and raped her and then Michael says he pretended to rape the fourth girl and then shoots her as well as the girl that Robert had raped. He said he then stacked the girls bodies and quote administered the accelerant end quote and set the bodies on fire. He claims that Forrest left the scene and that they had to go drive around and find him. They then ditched a knife along the way. And this is all according to the confession that Michael gave. And there are clips of the interrogation, which I'll post on the blog for you guys to check out as well. So you can see kind of how that went. Michael would later wonder if he should have called a lawyer. Just like, yes, you should have. Always call a lawyer. Right away. Robert Springsteen, now 24, confessed next. And he said similar things to what Michael had said in his own confession. He also said that he was berated by the police and they would not let him leave without saying what they wanted him to. They both said that Robert had raped Amy. They both said that the back door was propped open and that Forrest had remained, remained outside. Michael also did not bring up the 38 caliber gun, but Robert did. There were many things that they didn't get right as well. They claim that the murder occurred in the office, which we know is not likely because the office door was found locked and the murders, the bodies were found in the storage area of the back you know, the back area. And the fire was said to initially have started on the wall near the shelving, but Michael claimed that they lit the bodies on fire. 
After this, investigators went out and got a second opinion from an ATF agent named Marshall Littleton that matched Scott's confession about them setting the bodies on fire. Now, one of the men said that they used a rock to prop the back door open, and the other said that they used a pack of cigarettes. So, yes, they got some things correct, but there was so much that they didn't get correct. And the things that they did get correct, it didn't seem like they had come up with on their own. Horace Wellborn, now 23, always said that he was not at the scene and that he was innocent. And he didn't give detectives anything to work with in their interviews. He was just like, nope, I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't do this. Maurice Pierce, now 24, claimed that he gave the gun to Forrest Wellborn and that he used it in the murder, but he maintained his own innocence. The four men were arrested on October 6th, 1999. Michael Scott was arrested at his storage space and was taken to Travis County Jail. Robert Springsteen was arrested at his home and was taken to the South Central Regional Detention Center. Maurice Pierce was arrested on his way to work and was taken to the Gardner Betts Juvenile Detention Center along with Forrest Wellborn, who was arrested at an auto repair shop. A press conference was held where Mayor Kirk Watson said, quote, On December 6, 1991, we as a city lost our innocence. Today, we regained our confidence, end quote. The cases against Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott remain the prosecutor's main focus, but the only evidence against the two in this case was their own confessions. And we know false confessions weren't really uncommon in this case because there were 50 of them. So nearly 10 years after the murder, the trials began. Both defendants faced the death penalty. Both Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott faced the death penalty. The trial lasted three weeks. And Robert and Michael were tried separately. They weren't allowed to testify against each other. so. Parts of their confessions were read in the courtrooms instead. The jury deliberated for 13 hours and found Robert Springsteen guilty of capital murder and sentenced him to death. In 2002, Michael Scott was found guilty as well and was sentenced to life in prison because he was a minor at the time that the crime was committed. The charges against Forrest Welburn and Maurice Pierce were dropped due to lack of evidence. Now, in 2006, both Robert Springsteen's and Michael Scott's convictions were overturned based on constitutional rights infringements. It was said that their Sixth Amendment right to confront accusers was violated when their confessions were used in the trial, but they weren't allowed to testify against each other. The district attorney, Rosemary Lindbergh, was committed to retrying the two. They weren't released from prison. A new DNA test was performed on vaginal swabs that were taken taken from the victims at the time of the murder. This testing is called YSTR testing, and it was fairly new at the time of the murder or at the time of this testing. It searches for male DNA only, and there was a partial male DNA profile that was found on one of the victims. This DNA did not match any of the original four suspects, including Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, who were convicted of the crimes. 
The charges were dropped against Springsteen and Scott on June 24, 2009, and they were released from prison. However, they weren't exonerated. A few other things to note. At the time of the killings, a known serial killer named Kenneth McDuff was in the area. He abducted a woman from a car wash nearby around the time of the murder. He had a history of multiple murders involving teenagers, but he was soon ruled out and he was executed on November 17, 1998. There was another serial killer that was active at the time, and he was known as the fast food serial killer. He would rob fast food locations, destroy video footage, and execute the people inside. He killed a total of seven people. He was in the area at the time as well, and he was from Texas, but rape wasn't really in his motive, so it didn't really fit. Another massacre that occurred at the time was known as the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. It took place in Las Cruces, New Mexico in February of 1990. In that crime, two armed men entered through an unlocked bowling alley door before the business was open and found the bowling alley's manager, as well as her 12-year-old daughter and her 13-year-old friend inside. The men ordered all three of them to lay on the floor of the manager's office while they stole approximately $5,000 from the safe. They were interrupted by the arrival of another bowling alley employee with his two daughters, two and six years old at the time, and the men shot all seven victims with a 22 caliber pistol and then set the bowling alley on fire. Three of the victims survived and identified the killers as two dark-complected Hispanic males who spoke fluent English. But those crimes were committed within 22 months of each other, and they're both unsolved. On December 23, 2010, an Austin police officer named Frank Wilson and his rookie partner, Bradley Smith, conducted a traffic stop on a vehicle driven by Maurice Pierce. After a brief pursuit on foot, Pierce struggled with Wilson before removing a knife from his belt and stabbing Wilson in the neck. Wilson survived his injuries and pulled out a gun and shot Pierce and killed him. On December 8, 2021, the House Judiciary Committee passed legislation from Representative Michael McCall giving the families of cold case victims the opportunity to petition the federal government to re-examine cases older than three years. On August 3, 2022, President Joe Biden signed the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act into law, which was motivated by the yogurt shop murders. The law is intended to help ensure federal law enforcement reviews sometimes really old cases, cold cases, and applies the latest technologies and investigative standards. The logistics aren't really clear in the bill. However, it does state that people can request a cold case murder be reviewed by federal agencies. And if the case qualifies, new eyes will investigate using the latest technologies to try to solve the case. So a little bit more about the victims. Eliza was very close with her sister, Sonora. She claims it was really hard for the family to talk about Eliza after it happened. Sonora said that Eliza had a pig that she was going to enter in an upcoming show. 
And a few months after the murder, Sonora entered the pig and took third place in honor of her sister, Eliza. Sonora said she really struggled after the case, and she eventually became a therapist to help others with their own trauma. Her mother, Maria, passed away without finding out who really killed her daughter. Jennifer and Sarah's mother, Barbara, lost both her daughters that night. She eventually started the Jennifer and Sarah Harbison FFA Scholarship Fund in honor of them. And Amy Ayers' family also started an FFA foundation in her name. 31 years later, and the case is still unsolved. But with new DNA technologies, hopefully one day they'll be able to identify the suspect through the DNA profile that they've obtained. The green and white pinstripe shirt that John Jones was wearing that night still hangs in his closet as a reminder of the case. He told the families of the girls that the next time they see him wearing that shirt, the case will be solved. He still lives with PTSD from what he saw that night after all this time. And that is the case of the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. I really hope that one day this case is able to be solved for the girls and for their families. They deserve justice and to know that the person who committed this crime is paying for what they did. Thanks for tuning in today. The sources for today's episode will be listed in the show notes and also on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. For exclusive content and access to our Patreon-only Facebook group, please join us over on Patreon. The first exclusive episode Cruise Ship Disappearances Part 1 is available now at the $1 per month level on up. If you join at the $5 per month level, you'll have access to upcoming episodes one week early, and you'll get an exclusive The Haunted Corner sticker after donating for three months, plus a lot more. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.